0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Indonesia's president is in a bind. He wants sharp economic growth, but that might come at the cost of his anti-corruption efforts. Islamic conservatives are pushing for restrictive new legislation— But that has brought out student protesters in numbers not seen for decades. And our correspondent digs into a pile of autobiographies, trawling through the life stories of America's Democratic presidential contenders. What qualities of a president are apparent in the musings of an author? But first... In America, a debate is growing increasingly fervent. Did President Donald Trump withhold military aid to pressure Ukraine into investigating his political rival, Joe Biden? Adam Schiff, the head of the House Intelligence Committee, thinks he did.
1: Shorn of its rambling character, and in not so many words, this is the essence of what the president communicates. We've been very good to your country. Very good. No other country has done as much as we have. But you know what? I don't see much reciprocity here. I hear what you want. I have a favor I want from you, though. I want you to make up dirt on my political opponent, understand lots of it.
0: Mr. Trump, surprisingly, perhaps, doubled down yesterday, publicly making the same kind of suggestion that now forms the center of a sprawling impeachment inquiry.
2: So I would say that President Zelensky... If it were me, I would recommend that they start an investigation into the Bidens. Likewise,
1: China should start an investigation into the Bidens.
0: But the Ukraine scandal is also about just that, Ukraine. At the center of the affair is President Vladimir Zelensky, a former comedian with no political experience. He is tasked with resolving a five-year conflict with Russia following its invasion of Crimea in 2014. The Kremlin-backed war in eastern Ukraine has killed 13,000 people. This week, there was a breakthrough in peace talks between the two countries, clearing the pathway to an international summit. But for Ukraine to maintain a strong position, Mr. Zelensky depends on help from America, and that means military aid. So what does this scandal look like from Ukraine?
2: I was in Kiev at the end of the week when this story had broken.
0: Anne McElvoy is a senior editor at The Economist.
2: And it was fascinating. Every bar and cafe you went into, you could hear the words Zelensky, Trump, and often very heated debates about what had happened, what it meant for Ukraine, and crucially, who had got the upper hand at the end of it all.
0: And so did you speak to many Ukrainians about what they made of the, the unfolding scandal?
2: Yes, I wanted to hear the voices, really, of the emerging generation in Ukraine, And I spoke to students of economic journalism, a very bright bunch, at a university. And I found that the opinion was very divided, as one young woman, for instance, felt it reflected very badly on Ukraine. I had this feeling as a shame about Ukrainian president because... uh, She didn't seem to like her president very much being a supplicant in this conversation, having to flatter President Trump and agree to his demands. This feeling that Zelensky want to... um, Repeat everything the Trump said. It was like we are not independent country, but we will do everything United States wants because we need help from United States. And one of the other students even suggested they shouldn't take the military aid. At all, after all of this.
3: For me, it's not acceptable. And uh, uh, what about this aid? Uh, I don't know if we should take it now or not. uh, Because for me, yeah, I know that it's necessary for our country and we uh, might not handle it without it. Uh, But uh, maybe we need to
1: change a prosecutor after this.
2: But I did speak to another young woman via a translator and she took a different view, which was interesting. I think
1: that if it is the price to have this cheap military aid from Trump just for President Zelensky being thankful and uh, uh, like praising his ego a little bit, it's a good price to pay because we really need this
2: uh, aid.
0: And do you think that that view is common in Ukraine?
2: I think this pragmatic view that whatever the embarrassments of those encounters with Donald Trump, that it's worth it if you get to hang on to military aid, which does amount to a lot. It's about $1.5 billion since 2014, and that this is essential to this effort to ending the conflict with Russia on good terms. I think actually that's a view that's quite widely held, Perhaps not so much in the elites and among young liberals, but I think if you went out into the country, in particular into areas very affected by the war, they care about that money continuing to flow from Washington, and they're prepared to do almost anything for that to happen.
0: Well, what about that ongoing conflict and the degree to which military aid is maintaining the balance of powers in Ukraine now? How, how do things look geopolitically?
2: The other reason that this funding matters so much right now, and it has been restored, is that the deal on elections for the Donbass region, which was part of the Ukrainian demand for going on to an international summit on peace talks, that deal was reached on Tuesday. So something is moving, but it's very important that Kiev goes into this final round of negotiations with some military spending in its back pocket to push back against Vladimir Putin as we try to get through this very painful endgame.
0: It's clear what's at stake for Ukraine in that sense. But what about America? Why does it have skin in this game?
2: Geopolitically, since the end of the Cold War, Ukraine has been extremely significant to America. It is a very large country. Its location between Russia and Poland and the rest of Europe makes it always an interesting fulcrum. But more to the point, if you take relations with Vladimir Putin as being very changeable, you really do need solid relationships with Ukraine. And there is a lot of interest, and particularly, I think, a lot on the Republican side in supporting Ukraine and seeing it as a bit of a counterweight against an overmighty Russia.
0: And what's Mr. Putin's perspective on reaching a settlement with Ukraine?
2: One voice I consulted about this is Richard Dearlove. He's the former chief of MI6, so Britain's top spy when he was in office. Crucially, he knows Russia and he knows the old Eastern Europe and the old communist world very well indeed. Mr Dearlove told me that Moscow really needs to nail this problem.
1: I'm absolutely of the view, which I have had confirmed by speaking to one or two senior Russians, that they're on a hook in Ukraine, which they're desperate to get off, Um, But they need to get off it without loss of face.
2: He said that Putin's popularity is declining sharply. Russia is under sanctions from both Europe and America. They have body bags coming home because of that conflict in eastern Ukraine, even though it is not acknowledged in the media. That is a very sore point with public opinion. So he wants a deal, Mr Putin, but there will have to be compromises along the way.
1: And I think the West will compromise. We're not going to fight Russia over Ukraine. It's just, you know, we're not going to fight Russia over Crimea. Forget about it. So we've got to come to some accommodation. And from Ukraine's
0: perspective, if that negotiated settlement comes about, Ukraine simply gets its safety back?
2: Ukraine would get its safety back, its security But it would also be very good for Ukraine economically. There's vast potential in the Ukrainian economy. It is not realized partly because of corruption, but also because the country has been locked in conflict for the last five years.
0: I mean, it's clear what Mr. Dearlove thinks about this, that it's sort of a net positive from a security and an economic perspective for a settlement to come about. What do you reckon?
2: Well, I think from the intelligence services perspective and the geopolitics, he's right. The difficulty is this. If you accept that there is an end game with Vladimir Putin in which it's a kind of negotiated settlement, you are to an extent playing Mr. Putin's game that you can invade countries, you can cause untold suffering and loss of life. And then a few years later, when you've had enough of it, you could come to the negotiating table and a deal will be done and it will half benefit Ukraine, half benefit Russia. I think there are moral problems with that position. Mr. Tierlove is a very pragmatic student of international affairs. He thinks that's about the best that can happen. I would just say be cautious along the way that one doesn't then simply encourage this kind of frozen conflict thinking in Moscow that they always in the end get away with it.
0: And this question around the now infamous phone call between Mr. Zelensky and Mr. Trump had been framed as a sort of who wins, who's come out the worst. What do you think about that question?
2: Donald Trump has certainly suffered, whichever way you look at it. It's embroiled him in an impeachment inquiry. It's just another turn of the screw. I'm sure he'll fight back very assiduously. Mr. Zelensky's point of view, I slightly changed my view of him, to be honest. I think he's clearly an inexperienced politician. He has other interests in the background that he needs to deal with. Corruption is still not being dealt with adequately in Ukraine. But given that he walked into the fly into the web, if you like, with Donald Trump, I don't think he came out so badly after all. And I think it will strengthen him.
0: Thank you very much for your time, Anne.
2: Thank you, Jason. Enjoyed it.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax,
2: and think about
0: work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow, wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Indonesia's president, Joko Widodo, universally known as Jokowi, rose to power in 2014 as a political outsider, presenting himself as different from other politicians. A small-town businessman, he wasn't from the metropolitan elite and had little experience of the often corrupt horse-trading of national politics. He was re-elected in May of this year, increasing his majority. But some have begun to question his appetite for reform and his positioning as a man of the people. (laughs) — Outside Parliament, in Jakarta, and across the country, tens of thousands of people have been protesting.
1: 21 years ago, university students formed in huge protests that brought down the late dictator Suharto. Dominic Ziegler writes Banyan, our column on Asian affairs. And now a new wave of university students are protesting against government policies in ways that consciously echo that earlier reformasi movement. So what is it that sparked the protest this time around? What really sparked the protests was a proposed revision to Indonesia's criminal code that would have criminalized, for instance, extramarital sex. Now, if you consider that two-fifths of Indonesian unmarried adolescents have had sex, well, then you understand the depth of student feeling. But the code was swinging in many other ways. It cracked down on religious tolerance, for instance. And it was certainly student protests that led Jokowi, to uh, urge the bill to be suspended, and that's what Parliament did last week. And so if the offending bill has been suspended, then
0: then why are the protests continuing?
1: Well, opposition to the criminal code is not the only thing that exercises the student protesters. There's a range of demands. One of the main ones is opposition to a gutting of Indonesia's anti-corruption commission, known as the KPK. This is one of the very few successful institutions in the so-called reformasi era after Suhata's dictatorship, the democratic era. And it really was an effective body that went against corruption, corruption by politicians, the police, state enterprise executives, and people close to the president's office. Now, the proposed bill takes away all the KPK's strengths. It removes its independence. It would put in charge a current police chief, Uh, even though the police is one of the most corrupt Institutions in government. And it would also make it much easier for politicians who engage in corruption to get off scot free. The bill was passed hurriedly without consultation towards the end of Parliament's session, which ended on September the 30th. But the protesters are still out on the streets demanding that Jokowi, the president, now suspend that bill for a year.
0: So we've got this criminal code bill, which has been suspended at the last minute, and a, a essentially a gutting of the anti corruption commission, which went through hurriedly. Neither of these sounds like the kind of legislation that Jokowi, the reformer who was elected on a campaign of reform, would have been behind. Why was he?
1: Yeah, he was elected because he was seen to be clean and that he wanted good governance. But actually, perhaps many Indonesians and outside commentators misread the man. The thing that really concerns him is to achieve fast economic growth. He wants uh, an implausible rate of 7% growth a year, and he wants to do this by building stuff by building bridges, new ports, uh, roads, power plants, things that he says can turbocharge the economy. Now, to get that stuff built, actually, a little bit of graft doesn't do any harm in his book. It helps oil the wheels. And so, no, he's not really out to bring about deep institutional reform. He's much more interested in getting stuff done. So that's one reason why he's up for gutting this bill. The other reason is that he does have powerful political masters, Megawati, the daughter of Indonesia's founding father, former president herself, is the party boss. Um, there are others in the coalition that he needs on side. So it's kind of easier if he doesn't go after corruption.
0: But what about the elements that are more socially minded, like religious tolerance and extramarital sex? I mean, for whose benefit is this bill that has so riled the students?
1: Well, uh, in uh, in one of the great ironies, his next vice president, because uh, Jokowi is about to be inaugurated for a second term, is the head of Indonesia's top clerical body. And this man, Maruf Amin, was a great supporter of the criminal code revision. He's very much a conservative. And Jokowi himself has to appeal to that conservative wing of Islam. He knows he's vulnerable because that wing has in the past accused him of being faithless, Uh, even spreading rumours that he himself is not a Muslim at all, but a a Christian. So do you think he'll be able to survive this? He's seen other protests down, but those ones have been organised by parts of the elites. Uh, They've been elite-driven. This time, it's a different type of movement. It's a bottom-up movement. And for Jokowi, that's also new. He was the outsider. He was the guy, you know, from the bottom. He worked his way up. And now the people who voted him in the first place... Are saying, "Hey, no, we we want a different Jacobi." It's not certain that uh, Jacobi can pivot fast enough and uh, and and please these protests, which is why I think they could continue for some time.
0: Dominic, thank you very much for joining
1: us. Thanks, Jason.
0: Even though America's presidential election is still more than a year away. There's been no shortage of headlines about the democratic candidates, from Joe Biden's son's connections in Ukraine to Bernie Sanders's health issues. But beyond the news, how can you get a sense of who these candidates really are? You read their autobiographies.
3: I think that politicians write books for two main reasons.
0: John Fasman is the Economist's Washington correspondent with a long reading list.
3: One of them is that it signals their seriousness to donors to journalists and to party elites. And the other is that it lets them explain who they are and what they want to do at length, unintermediated and without interruption.
0: So when you read these books, what qualities are you looking for? What skills do you want these candidates to show?
3: Well, all the books are telling in some way, whether because of what they say or how they say it, or sometimes what they don't say. One of the qualities that a president has to have in the American system is the power of persuasion, right? The president has the bully pulpit of the books that, that I read, the candidate who seems most able to persuade people why she thinks what she thinks is, is Elizabeth Warren. And this is not an endorsement of her policies. It's just a note that she's really good at the political skill of saying why she thinks what she thinks, explaining why policy matters, and I think most importantly, telling stories that connect policy to ordinary people. Her book is just, she's just very good at this.
0: So if Mrs. Warren makes policy readable and persuasive, do any of the other books get bogged down in the theory and principle?
3: Well, if what you want is someone who is the most committed to his ideals, then I think what you want is Bernie Sanders. Sanders' book and Sanders himself read like the product of a man who is 100% convinced that he's right and that everyone who opposes him is either cowardly or corrupt. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren seem to be competing for more or less a similar pool of voters, if not the exact same. They're both running on the far left of the party. The main difference between them, and you get this from their books, is that Sanders seems singularly uninterested in persuading anyone who doesn't already agree with him. He has never seen a complicated political problem that he doesn't shout at rather than wrestle with. Whereas Warren really does explain why she thinks what she thinks and explain why she thinks her view will be best for the country. So in that sense, if what you're interested in is a progressive candidate who can grow from that base rather than a progressive candidate who is mired in that base, then that speaks well of Warren rather than Sanders.
0: Do you think that comes down to writing skill? You know, there's there's plenty of brilliant but unreadable treatises out there. Do you think there's a strong parallel between a good leader and a good writer?
3: Speaking of someone who writes for a living, I have to say not as strong as I would like. But if you're looking for a potential leader who is a good writer, then I would recommend Pete Buttigieg's book. He has said a couple of times that if he weren't in politics, he'd like to try his hand at novel writing. And his book really is the most sort of novelistic of the campaign books in that sense. He is the most skilled at evoking place and evoking character his book is quite introspective in a way that that other candidates are not he sketches out his own personal journey quite well and he is a he's a deeply thoughtful candidate
0: well yeah the the personal journey thing is kind of dare I say kind of a a trope of of the genre
3: isn't it it is and another candidate who does that very well is joe biden his book is about his last years in the obama white house when he was trying to decide whether he wanted to run for president in 2016. He ultimately didn't because, and this is what the other thing is about, it's about his older son's struggle with the brain cancer that eventually killed him. And so Biden, one reason people like him is that he is just a, just a very big-hearted, emotional guy. And that comes through in this book quite clearly,
0: Is there ever a tension in any of these books between the the kind of person that comes off the page and the kind of person you think um, would, would make a good contender, would make a good leader?
3: Yeah, I think that you read Cory Booker's book, just as when you meet Cory Booker, you come away convinced that he is a thoroughly decent person who got into politics for the right reason. But he also seems to completely lack ruthlessness, which speaks well of him as a person but I think speaks somewhat poorly of him as a contender. And
0: are there other books in this giant pile you've read that you can kind of look at the book and and essentially see the outcome of the candidacy?
3: Well, I think Kamala Harris's book was dull for the same reason that her candidacy is struggling, which is that she she is so careful and so rehearsed. The book... Everything seems canned and staged. And that's been a problem with her campaign, too, so far. She does the set pieces really well. When she has a prepared line, she delivers it quite well. But I think she doesn't think on her feet terribly well. And that leads to a sense that she doesn't quite know what she believes or why she's running. And I think that has been the main drawback of her campaign so far.
0: So so all told do you do you think there's much to be gained in terms of you know uh insights and future gazing from from reading these books or do they amount to to nothing more than sort of politically useful vanity projects do you reckon
3: I have to say I was really surprised at how useful it was to read all these books and it gives you a fuller insight as to who the candidate is and you see their campaign in three dimensions in a way that you might not without reading the book now You know, can you vote for a candidate and follow the races without reading them? Yes, you can. But if you are passionate about politics and you want to make the most informed decision that you can, I I highly recommend reading at least a couple of them.
0: John, thank you very much for your time.
3: My pleasure, as always.
0: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence, If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday.